want to start this morning by telling you about two pastors that I know quite personally. The first one pastors a church that's a lot like this one. It's out in the country, uh, a lot of uh, blue-collar workers, uh, about the same size as ours as well. Uh, now, this pastor is several years older than me, but has only been in the ministry for about eight years. Now, what's so unique about his church is that it di- doesn't matter or didn't matter when I would visit, whether it went two years or two weeks, every time I went there and every time I would talk to him, there was a new believer in his church. Now, before he became a pastor, he would sometimes fill the pulpit at the church where I pastored. And I'm not exaggerating at all. Every time he would preach, someone would come forward and make a profession of faith. Now, he has no methodology. He doesn't have any sort of evangelism program. In fact, he has no Bible training whatsoever. His background was in used cars. God has just simply blessed him with the ability to share the gospel. Let me tell you, though, about a second pastor. Now, he's just a few years older than me. Pastors a church of about 300 in a city a little bit larger than North Platte. Every year he's been there, and the 15 years he's been there, that church has grown. Never gotten smaller. He, too, has a tendency to attract new people. But in his church, there's always some form of discipleship program going on. He's always trying to find new and creative ways to to get new believers and old believers together to help them grow in their faith. He has a methodology. He's very organized. He's very focused. He He is the son of a preacher. He has a doctorate in theology. In fact, he has really done nothing else in his life but ministry. Now, my point in telling you about these two men is that it seems from observation over the course of watching their ministries, and as I've understood more of church history, when it comes to people becoming Christians, when it comes to Christians growing up, history seems to point out that it's not methodology, not education, not location, and not culture that causes those kind of things. Now, none of them create an advantage, and none of them really create a hindrance, but there's something else in play. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about a word, revival. Now, to talk about revival, we have to understand what we mean by that word. Revival in the scriptures means for something that used to be alive to be alive again. The term is only used for people who are already believers. We're we're not talking about the conversion of an unbeliever. We're not talking about somebody becoming a Christian. The word revival is used in the Bible to describe somebody who perhaps was walking with God, for some reason stopped walking with God, and needed to be revived. When it comes to unbelievers, the term we find in Scripture really is more the idea of seeing. The very popular form of, the, or the very popular phrase, being born again, or, or in some places of Scripture, the idea of being, becoming a Christian is like waking up. 
Now, when we historically see lots of people becoming Christians at one time, they're typically called great awakenings. And when those great awakenings happen, they always seem to start with revival in the local church. That's always the pattern. There's not a single exception. If we see a great awakening, it has always started with a revival in a local church. It has then gone to other local churches where there is revival there. And as a result, there is this mass great awakening. Now, if I were to look out across the country, I would say we need a great baby boom. We need people to be born again. But when I look at the Christian church specifically in America, I would say we need revival. What was once dynamic, living, breathing, needs breath back into it. If we want to see people converted and saved, we have to have that first. And I want to share with you this morning as we look at Asa's revival. What we need to see that happen and how we understand it and and how we should be looking for it. 2 Chronicles 15 is about King Asa's revival. As we watch the people of God who were once spiritually alive and had died and now coming back to life again. And I'll explain more as we go on. Three points for you this morning. Number one, number one, seeking the Lord is the requirement of revival. Seeking the Lord is the requirement of revival. So Ace is on his way home after having this great victory that we looked at in chapter 14 over the Ethiopians. Now this is not just a victory. This is an incredible, improbable victory. He was significantly outnumbered, but God had given him the victory. And he's on his way home and he's obtained a significant spoils of war. Now, before that victory, the Bible tells us that that Asa had made some changes in Judah. He had gotten rid of idols in high places and pagan worship centers. We looked at the idea that the ideas and the theology and the politics of false gods had permeated his country. Outward people were still acting like they were the people of God, but really the truth was very different. So Asa ended the practices of false worship. He ended and took away the idols. He changed, if you want, the politic, the political and social structure of his country. And he did it because he had been gripped by a desire to please the Lord. Now here in the first seven verses of chapter 15, he's on his way home and he he meets a prophet. Now, one of the reasons, if you didn't know this, one of the reasons that 2 Chronicles is different than 1 and 2 Kings is that 1 and 2 Chronicles is concerned about the prophetic. Chronicles is, is not really, it's not about knowing the future. It's about being guided by what God has said. So if you read through 2 Chronicles, one of the things you'll run into from time to time is the writer will tell you, hey, I got this story from the story of this particular prophet. And what he's probably talking about is a local pastor, a local leader who shared what happened here. But the idea here is this, that Asa is confronted or is met by a prophet. And the first thing he announces to Asa is that the Lord is with you. 
Now, if you, again, if you read Second Chronicles all the way through, we find that any success is always followed by that phrase, the Lord his God was with him, or the Lord her God was with her. It's a major idea. But then the prophet goes on to say something very important. Here's what he says. He says, if you will seek God, he will be found. Just, just sit, and fray, sit on that for a little while in your life. If you seek God, he will be found. And he goes on a little bit further and he says, look, every time the people of God, even, because their motive, even when their motivation was because they were under a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety, because they were only calling out to God because their lives had been turned upside down, he said, even then, if you seek God, he will be found. He says, and when the people of God did not seek the Lord, there wasn't any peace. And when the people of God were not seeking the Lord, great distresses and problems and issues were poured out on them in order to get them to seek him. And so what the prophet is saying to him, he says, take courage, keep seeking the Lord, and there will be the reward. So the condition of revival, the requirement of revival is to seek the Lord. If you say, you know what, my spiritual life has been kind of dead lately. I've been opening my Bible. If I've been trying to do this, I've been trying to do that. The Bible says, if you want your spiritual life to wake up, seek the Lord. If you want power in whatever ministry that you're doing, if you want the power or the ability to reach a neighbor that is a burden upon your heart, the idea is to seek the Lord. There is no special ingredient. There is no secret knowledge to unlock. The Bible's open and clear. This is what you have to do. You have to seek the Lord. And it even tells us how to do it. It tells us, for example, to to, to go and put yourself under the hearing of God's word. Now, in this day and age, you can listen to God's word all the time. You can listen to it on the radio. You can see it on TV. You can download a podcast. But I want to remind you that when the Bible says about putting yourself under the hearing of God's word, it is talking about something local. There should be a very small amount of distance between the person that you hear the word from. It's supposed to be personal. It's supposed to include not just the hearing of a sermon, but being baptized and and observing communion with a, a local fellowship. That's how you seek the Lord. He talks about seeking the Lord in the scriptures through the concept of repentance. And all that simply means is that when you hear the word of God, you make the change that is necessary. Whether it's to stop doing something you should not be doing or doing something you should be doing. We seek to remove everything between us and him that might get in the way. The third is to cry out to him. That's different than repentance. We take short prayers, we take long prayers, we ask for justice, we ask for victory, we ask for money, we ask for health. We take whatever is laying on our heart and we go to him with it. Those are the ways that we seek the Lord. But the thing is, I say all that assuming you've done the most important thing. That you've believed God. You see, Asa made the changes that he made because he believed God. God had told them all the way back in Deuteronomy that if they would believe him, he would save them, he would help them, he would bless them. Same is true today. 
The Bible says to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not that you need to know every nuance on theology. You need to know what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Where we're told to believe the most basic thing. Jesus Christ died for our sins as God said would happen. Believe it. Jesus rose from the dead as God said would happen. Believe it. And if you've not done that, then all of the preaching and all the hearing and all the moral changes and all the prayers you do will be for nothing. It starts with believing God. Then we listen. Then we repent. Then we pray. Number two this morning. Worship and ministry are the marks of revival. Worship and ministry are the marks of revival. The Bible tells us that hearing what the prophet has said to him, Asa then does have courage. And we find out that he understands that there's more reforms to be made, and so Asa makes them. Now in verse 8, we get new information. Asa takes his influence beyond Judah. Every place that he had any sort of influence over, he would seek the Lord and make changes. He would take whatever displeased God and he would take it away. Every place, every issue, everything that was under question, anything that did not please God, Asa attempted to make a change. The idea there being that Asa did not just make the change in the most obvious and easiest places. He dug, he looked, he tried to root out whatever it was that needed to change. Now the next thing the Bible tells us is he repaired the altar. Now this was the common altar, the daily altar, if you will. Now we don't use altars anymore because our altar is Christ. But this altar had fallen into disrepair. That doesn't just mean that it was neglected. It means that it wasn't the center of their lives like it should have been. If you go back to the beginning of your Bible, and you look at all the laws and all the sacrifices that should have been done upon this altar, you realize, you realize there should have been a line of people trying to use this altar. It should never have fallen into disrepair. And so part of the mark of the revival going on here is that normal obedience was beginning to happen. Next, we're told in the text that Asa begins to plan this grand worship service. You go all the way back to 2 Chronicles, and you see the last time this happened, when Solomon dedicated the temple. But it's never been repeated since. I want you to notice in verse 9, the Bible tells us the people who gathered for this worship service included members of the northern kingdom with whom there was much hostility. And what the Bible's telling us is that people who lived in that kingdom moved away from the land of their ancestor, moved away and gave up owner's rights. They walked away from their roots, all because they heard that down in Judah, the people were seeking the Lord. And then lastly, we look at the activity of worship. Like I mentioned, this worship service had not happened to this degree since Solomon had dedicated the temple. And it will not happen again until after they get back from captivity. But this is real revival. The people were coming. They desired to worship. This was the mark. Now, it was interesting to me. I read the last couple of weeks. The vast majority of Americans move from one place to another because of economic reasons. So you might move from California to escape the oppressive oppressive taxes. Or you might move to Tennessee where they don't have any income tax. 
But the main reason people move in America is economical. I don't know if many of you remember this. Some of you who've been here for a little while might. But we had a family visit. They only came for a couple of weeks. He had lost his job and they needed to move. But what was fascinating is I was talking, talking with them about what was going on in their life. And they said to me, we're looking to move where we can find a good church. It wasn't economical. They weren't looking to go where family and friends were. They weren't looking to find the right economic opportunity. They were focused entirely on finding the best church they could, and then they would move there and let the rest uh, worry about itself. Who does that? Then you got to stop and think. They visited us and left. (laughs) Now, for years, for years, revival was always measured by different things. It was measured by whether or not a town or or a county would stop selling alcohol. There's still dry counties in in, uh, Pennsylvania and in Michigan because of the revivals of Billy Sunday. Sometimes they would be measured by how many unmarried couples got right with God and got married. Sometimes they would be measured by how many of the rich and influential in town became Christians. But the Bible has always measured revival by worship and ministry. By the questions, do the people gather? Do the people sing? Do the people sacrifice? Are they returning to worship? And not just going to church on a regular basis. Are they becoming members? Are they making this their social circle? Are they praying? Are they living? Are they eating together? That's the mark of revival. But there's another one. One of the things that's happened to a lot of American Christians is that we have gotten into our heads that in order to solve any problem, we need an expert. If there's marriage problems, we farm it out to marriage experts. Parental parental problems, we farm it out to parenting experts. Churches now call for all sorts of specialists to analyze how to market their church, how to make it bigger, how to do this, how to do that. And so no wonder when we look into our own community and we look at our own neighborhoods and we look at our own country, our reflect is to farm it out to leaders and politicians. But I thought Christ was king. You might not be king. I'm not a king. But aren't we the child of the king? Do we still believe that Jesus is Lord, that his gospel is powerful, that the church is his bride and we are his children? So when we ask for revival, when we sit and we pray together maybe on Sunday night and say, Lord, we want revival. What we're asking him is that he would make us the people who see what displeases God and work to change it. We are saying we want us to be the ones who share the gospel with our neighbors. We want us, not experts, to build the kingdom of Christ. That's revival. That brings me to number three. Number three, life change is is what happens when there is revival. Life change is what happens when there is revival. And we have an interest in these final few verses in the chapter. We have an interesting little account of how Asa removed his mother from being the queen. 
And we're told he did it because she had been dealing in idols and pagan worship. Now you think, well, this is interesting, but it's actually quite significant. You see, if you go read through your Bible, we have several examples of queens and moms playing important life, uh, important doing important work in the political realm. Women like Jezebel to Bathsheba and others, they knew women, they knew how to turn the hearts and the minds of their husbands and sons. They had influence. And Asa looked at his mother and saw what she was up to, and he removed her influence. You see, because like I said, it wasn't just the removing of idols and pagan worship. It wasn't just privacy of their home. These things were changing how people thought about God's law, about how they looked at art and politics and more. So Asa removes his mother from having access to him, to the legal proceedings, to advisors, to military leaders, and so on. Then we get to verse 17. We kind of get a little summary here. We find that the altars were not all torn down, and that Asa was faithful all his days. The problem with that verse is this. It seems to contradict what we find out in chapter 14, and it seems to contradict what we find out in chapter 16. So what I want to clarify here is what we get here at the end of the chapter is a summary of the first 35 years as Asa is king. For 35 years, he'd worked at taking down high places, and for 35 years, he walked with the Lord. But I want you to notice, though, we also find out here that in all of that time, there were still those who were cold towards God. If there were still idols, if there's still high places, that means there were those who were resisting Asa's revival. Lastly, in verse 18, we're told about an extreme financial offering to God. Let me see if I can capture this idea. Most of, in this, most of us, I, I'll, let me just maybe say all of us. I don't know your personal finances, but I can take a pre- pretty good guess that all of us are not rich. And most of us are not even close. But most of us are doing okay, or just fine. Now imagine somebody comes along... And an opportunity comes to not only make you rich, but stupid rich. And a rich Uncle Moneybags decides to leave you all his money. You're out digging fence posts and you hit oil in your yard. You slip and fall at Walmart and win a billion dollar lawsuit, whatever it is. Now imagine taking all of that wealth and go, you know what? I'm fine. And just handing it all over to the church. Now we want to think in our heads. We would do that. But when faced with that moment. I, I can't help but look at all of those lottery winners. Lottery winners whose marriages fell apart. Whose kids became estranged. So we understand that money can have a really tight grip. But what's going on here? Isaiah had an t- opportunity to take and keep all of these things and could have possibly been as rich as his great-grandfather Solomon. But he gives all of it to God. That's the, revi- that's the impact of revival on him. Jesus tells us that if we want to follow him, 
We must love him more than any other relationship. Asa took his mother's role out of his life and out of his court in order to please God. That's a hard thing to do. Every year at Northland, in the fall semester, we had a week that was set apart with a special speaker that was focused entirely on the spiritual lives of the students. Guess what it was called? Revival Week. In every revival week, we all knew what was going to happen. People were going to have to go to teachers and administrators and confess to having cheated. Some would have to confess to having snuck off campus when they shouldn't have. One year, I even remember us having to have a dorm room meeting, and and one of the guys had to confess to all of us for, for stealing several things out of people's cars in the parking lot. However, there was one consistent thing, something that happened every single time. There were breakups. Sometimes those breakups of those relationships would happen because people renewed their call to the mission field. One felt to go, the other one didn't. And so they ended the relationship. Sometimes it was just a movement of the spirit to recognize that 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 relationship should not have been happening. I saw one that broke up after being together all four years at school. They were just months away from graduation. I'm sure she was already daydreaming about what her wedding was going to be like. And sometimes those relationships had to be broken up because they became convicted about the fact that they were intimate before marriage. And I look back and I say kudos to those who were willing to end a romantic relationship because Jesus meant more to them. That was the impact of revival. It was more than just going back to church. We note that means also that one of the impacts of revival is that there are going to be some who are going to be like the Pharaoh in Egypt. They're going to see what's happening and their heart is simply going to grow harder. And we're going to see people perhaps in our neighborhoods and, and sitting next to us in the pew who refuse to give up their idols and become more aggressive in defending their idols. There'll be more excuses, more blame shifting, more accusations that they are the true spiritual ones. But we also see here the revival will also make changes in one of the most sacred spaces in our hearts, the love of money, the obtaining of things. Let's get it right. Money can make us feel very secure. If we have enough, if we can look at our bank accounts and say, you know what, I got what I need, we feel secure. But James tells us two particular temptations come with the love of money. The first is if you don't have any, probably covers most of us. If you don't have any, the temptation is going to be to either ruin your life by trying to obtain more or becoming jealous, jealous and envious of those who do have money. And for those who have money, the temptation is going to be to hoard because you feel safe. But revival will impact that sacred space. Those who haven't done enough will be moved to do more. Those who have done enough will realize it was never enough in comparison to what Jesus had done. 
So to summarize this morning, to rev- the revival starts with those who are already alive. It starts in the local church with people who are already attending, already serving, already sacrificing. Revival starts with the people of God seeking the Lord. It's about putting away that which displeases God and putting in the things that do please God. We see revival, the mark of revival is the worship of uh, God's people, a renewal of the spirit of wanting to serve the Lord. And we see that revival will change the life. It will impact our relationships. It will impact our finances. It will impact what we find to be important and what we find to be unimportant. But revival starts with seeking more of Jesus. And we seek more of Jesus, then we're changed to be more like Jesus so that it impacts everything about us in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the example that we find in this chapter and the guidance it reminds us of of we our need to seek the Lord and how revival starts with us. And that's not just a, a cliche, but a reality. Your people seeking you. And then looking for the marks of worship and service and understanding that real revival is going to require and is going to bring change. We thank you for these truths and we pray, Father, you would do this thing in us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.